Welcome to the Thinking Classroom podcast with me, Mike Fleetham. This time I'm talking to Matthew Courtney and B. Durston about classroom research and how to make the most of it. My first marathon this year. We didn't even earlier talk about that whole other part of my life that's going on right now. I'm deep in marathon training. Currently. That is brilliant. Matthew, welcome. <laughs> and are you doing a marathon this year? Well, no, I am doing a triathlon, but strictly doing one part. It's like a relay triathlon. So oh, nice. Only have to do like a little run. I went, I did a park run this week. I thought that was quite good. But B, that's you really incredible. On that. When you say you're doing part of a triathlon, is that a a unithon you're doing like one bit of it or yeah but in a team of three so oh oh, that is pure collaboration isn't it we're doing a triathlon but there's three of us yeah exactly sharing it out i mean do you just want to introduce yourselves and your gifts to the world matthew matthew courtney hello um, i'm matthew courtney i am the hub lead at the wandle english hub and one of dfe's english hubs i also work for little wandle which is a ssp and early reading program and through Little One do I lead on um, research and impact for the programme. Look, I, I don't know you well enough to call you B. Is that OK, Beatrice? Yes, that is fine. Uh, hi, I'm B. Durston. I am a literary specialist for the Wondle English Hub. Um, as part of that role, I also conduct early reading audits in schools across London. And um, my other role, I work as a deputy head teacher at a two-form entry primary school in London. And I'm currently studying my master's at UCL for psychology of education. So many things combined into one person. Goodness me, the three people here in the virtual thinking classroom, but it feels like there's, there's many more. Thanks for coming, both of you. And the reason I wanted to speak to you is kind of questions I've been asking myself for most of my educational career, which is why do we do what we do in the classroom and the research that informs that? And I know both of you have been involved in and are involved in designing research, carrying out research and then and then applying it effectively in, in primary classrooms. I'd be interested in your take on what is research. Matthew, do you want to kick off? Um, Lawrence Stenhouse, who was the president of the British Education Research Association, he's done lots of work, did lots of work around teachers' engagement in and with research. And he describes um, research generally as systematic inquiry made public. And I think as a, as a broad definition, that's a really helpful one. Um, the systematic nature of research, but also the fact that it's public and people can access it, which I think in terms of this conversation is really relevant and helpful. I recently read um, Velda Elliott's um, new book, The Foundations of Education Research. And she talks about how that when you engage with research, working in education, when you read their work, you could be reading work from a psychologist, someone with a background in linguistics, psychometrics, economics, history. And I think that really does encapsulate the broad nature of it. I know that there's a bit of an identity crisis in educational research, people talking about whether it's a discipline, is it a separate thing or is it an applied science is it a field which encapsulates lots of different backgrounds and I think it's it's really um, broad thing to think about and it can go from early years up to higher education and beyond so I think it is hard to pin down what does education research mean because it's such a broad thing to think about. It sounds like a prime candidate for um, for a bit of research actually yeah (laughs) but what you said at the beginning there systematic inquiry made public um, that's that's quite a, a pithy summary of what it is. I mean, B, is that is kind of your experience of of what this is? 
Um, yeah, I guess it's, it, I've come at it from quite an interesting angle, I think, because it wasn't really until I chose to start studying for my master's part time that actually I realised as a practitioner quite how much I do use research in my practice or quite how much I'm engaging in research. And I actually think I'd throw my own hands up and say that before that I was doing it and not really understanding that actually that's exactly what I was doing when I was using certain parts of research that's out there. And then since studying my master's, I've suddenly gone, oh, actually, I, I do this a lot. And then I think another reason why I really enjoy talking about it and, and I'm quite vocal about the need for research is because equally I've sat then in a lot of my master's modules and thought, actually, sometimes in pockets of education, we don't use it enough with a lot of behavioural needs that we're seeing in children in education these days. Are we pulling on research enough in our conversations around that child? Um, I don't know. It's kind of the was kind of where I got to. So I come at it from two different angles, I guess. Someone that um, has always quite enjoyed engaging in research, but didn't really have an awareness necessarily that's what I was doing until I started studying for a master's. And then also someone that works in the sector that is quite, I would say, somewhat concerned about pockets of where we ne- might not necessarily put on it enough to help us as practitioners. That's interesting to hear because the concerns around whether we're pulling it on on it enough, when we do, how how do we pull on it? I mean, I've quite often come across folks who have found a piece of research and then use it maybe without the critique that it deserves, uh, whether it should be applied to their context, whether it is the piece they need. But it sounds quite compelling, quite interesting. It kind of brings us to the question of the, of the efficacy and the fidelity of the research and whether it's what you should should actually be using. So, I mean, you, you come across inquiries made public. How do you decide whether to use it? I think there's lots of things to think about when kind of appraising the quality of research and its relevance to your particular context. Steve Higgins from Durham University has done some work on this and he offers the six A's of usefulness of research. But the, when they look at things about usefulness here, we also think about the, the quality of, of, of research. Um, so he's got, is the research accessible? Is it accurate, applicable, acceptable? So think about ethics there, appropriate and actionable. Can we use the findings from the research to actually make a tangible change to our practice? I think we also need to um, bear in mind the kind of the level of research we're dealing with. So the EF, for example, taking lots of big studies and, and joining them together is a useful approach for some kinds of inquiry that we might want to look at at a school level. But I do think it's useful to think about what we want to find out and what is the most appropriate research methodology to engage with. That framework, that 6 A's framework, certainly gives a prompt and a way of people thinking about it rather than just accepting it without any critique. B, I'm thinking you said you found yourself doing research. If you reflect on that with the the 6 A's, there'll be a test coming up on what they actually are. Um, would, Would you say that the research you found yourself doing before you were aware of it was guided by those kind of A's? I actually think from a practitioner point of view, Matthew, start to touch on it there. It comes down to time. And therefore, I would say that as a practitioner, I probably first and foremost engaged in things like the EEF. Um, so things that were that were readily available more so for practitioners. Um, and that definitely does come down to the time rather than me actively thinking about those six A's, so to speak. So a lot of the time it was more around what was I seeing. Um, I also, in my early years of working education, became a big fan of Edu Twitter and, and the educational world on Twitter. So again, I would engage in things that floated around that virtual world um, and but that was again linked to the time that I had 
interesting because I wonder whether the, the time limits also affect your ability to engage with it authentically. You know, some, some research is quite compelling, like headlines in newspapers. You don't have the time to actually examine it and think about how this stacks up and whether it is correct, whether it is a truth, then maybe it could be misapplied. I mean, I, I'm very intrigued when we come across evidence that's presented by, I've got a friend who does this and it works, which is it's kind of the one person methodology, isn't it? I know someone who did it. I've seen it happen. Therefore, I'm going to do it. Whereas the methodologies you're both alluding to are a little bit more rigorous than that. I mean, how, how would you go about testing something in a school such that people could go, yeah, I, I kind of believe in that? I think you've touched upon a really important point there, Mike, that the, the kind of, it's really convincing and compelling when you hear people saying, oh, I've tried it for myself or I've got a friend at the school down the road who did this, it really works. I think naturally we've got a human instinct to be really kind of tuned into those those narratives and those stories that people tell us um, and it, it makes a compelling argument. And I think it's perhaps we need to be more conscious and kind of explicitly think about the research evidence and, and what that means to us is perhaps more unnatural than um, just hearing a story and hearing somebody making an argument in that, that kind of emotional way that it's worked for them. But I do think it's important that we go back to those A's to look at the, the quality of research or some kind of framework. But in terms of, of in, in trying something in school, I think um, the EEF's implementation guidance is a really, uh, guidance report is really helpful there. So if you've looked, if you found some really robust evidence about a particular area, you think, right, I want to try this within my own school to see if it does actually work in this setting. I think implementing it using that cycle is a really powerful way to have a go at trying to embed those findings in in your own school in your own setting i mean on on that theme b i know in your own professional context you have used research to um positively impact on on practice can you tell us how you how you did that yeah i mean just quickly before only because um it's just as you were both talking there it's interesting i would almost add a seventh a of um, algorithm and I think we're really I think we're quite hot on that now with regards to internet algorithms so of course when we talk about engaging in things like on Twitter my algorithm will naturally then reset itself to fire me similar research pieces or similar headlines so to speak but actually I think that natural algorithm happens in our circle socially doesn't it as well so actually you probably will have similar teacher friends for example that might have similar thoughts to you and that's actually why you've socially kind of gathered together so I just think that's just something to be aware of as well isn't it when you are listening to what other people's friends tried or so and so had this work I think it all comes down to kind of those algorithms whether online or in person um and then just going back to to your question Mike exactly what Matthew was just saying having that really clear cycle of how as a school or as a network what you do when somebody finds a piece of research that they have either taken interest to or have read it and engaged in it and thought oh, actually, this really refers to what we're trying to do in our school or in our network. Um, and actually just having that clear system and those clear that clear cycle of what you do. So I know certainly in my role as deputy head, um, we always have within our school, we have this kind of un, unspoken rule would be the wrong phrase, but, you know, un, unspoken cycle where uh, we'd always have it trialled in a key stage two and a key stage one class if it's a whole school thing that we're aiming to engage in. Um, and then we take it back to SLT to reflect on it. We take it back to our staffing team, our support staff team, 
potentially parents and students, depending on what it is. Um, and we go through that cycle before we roll anything out based on research. So um, I think just having those robust systems in place to make sure that actually you're doing it with an appropriate cycle and there's enough reflection time in there. And also, particularly if you want it to go whole school, it, you know, you have to have the buy-in from everyone and you have to have everyone really agreeing with what the research is saying if you're going to go for it as a, as a team. I like the, the idea of the cycles, the processes, the the algorithm. And Ma- Matthew, who's who was the six A's again? I've forgotten the. It was Steve Higgins, Professor Steve Higgins from. Steve, uh, I, met, I met University. Steve once a few few years, but I wonder. I think we may, maybe get an email about the seventh A. See if he's interested, and maybe push it up eight or nine. I mean, ten's a nice number, isn't it? I'm sure there's <laughs> more. But the algorithm, thinking about potentially the, the the how the how you do it. That's that's a really interesting theme. I mean, I'm thinking also about how what you do is presented to you. I'd just like your opinion on this, actually, because kind of to mitigate that, there's some very interesting graphics, aren't there? The, the way the research is presented. I think of John Hattie's Visible Learning, in which the motif there is 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 a, a dial that, well, like an accelerometer that goes from zero to, to 100. But the further to the right the dial is, the more um, effect, allegedly, the meta-analysis or the meta-research has. And then there's the EEF, where... You've got a number of stars against how much it costs versus the number of months acceleration it can give. Uh, and interestingly, a number of stars, isn't it, that indicate the strength of evidence behind that potential intervention. I'm just wondering what you both think about how the way a piece of research is presented can influence people's ability to engage with it. I think there's a trade-off there, isn't there? And I think having those... For, for time poor school leaders and teachers, having those kind of graphics, which in some way um, distill the information from the research evidence into a, a quick format you can pick up, it's visually appealing, you, you understand it fairly quickly, um, is useful in terms of engaging more and more teachers and school leaders with the evidence base. But I think there's a trade-off in terms of all of these things are complex, schools are complex places, and implementation of the findings and research isn't going to be as easy as just picking the things with most stars and doing that thing. There's going to be nuance within that, and that will be within the research, within the individual studies, within the meta-analysis, that nuance will come out. But just seeing that information to a quick graphic, it has it has the benefit of engaging more teachers and praising the, the level, the strength of the evidence behind different findings. But it, you do lose some nuance in terms of implementation there. It doesn't tell you how to make it work. I think the other thing within education is that often lots of these things have a positive impact. And depending on our context and kind of our time, we can't do all of these things at once. There's always going to be a trade-off on the, on the level of things we can implement at one time within a particular school or classroom. So those those simple graphics are useful to an extent, but I think there's there's more to the story there. That and we need to think about ways we can convey this information to busy school leaders and teachers in a way which captures the nuance of that too. That's the thing you brought up just previously, be about you know the time available to do it. You know, you've got am I going to read, you know, fifty research papers, or am I going to look at one colourful graphic that summarises fifty people's life's work with where a, where a line is on it. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, do you, B, do you have a preferred way of accessing your your research? I am a visual through and through person, <laughs> um, and I very much I that just speaks to me when things are put visually. I just find that a much easier to digest. 
I also think any research that discusses impact or potential impact probably speaks a lot louder to people in the education sector because we we're so aware of it. Budgets are tight. I'm not, you know, no, everyone listening to this knows that. Therefore, we have to know that we're going to get some impact from what we're choosing to engage in. So I think that definitely for the education sector is the way forward. Um, however, I think those kind of statistics or sweeping statements or a line on a, on a graphic obviously has to be taken with caution because they're always going to be averages of some sort. Uh, and we're talking about individuals here that we're using this research to kind of carry out on. And actually the individuals in my school might sit at one extreme of that average with regards to the impact I'm going to have on them with this particular you know, research piece, or they might say at the other end, it's not likely that they're going to be right in the middle and therefore that average might relate to my pupils that I'm going to necessarily be impacting on or, or my parents or my staff. And I think that we just have to have that in mind as well. It could either have more of an impact on our group that we might then engage in, in it with, but it could be the other way as well. Could be that actually the group that we're going to trial this with end up being the group that drag the average down, perhaps. So I think just although they're great for engaging people initially in that research piece, I think as practitioners, we still have to be aware that it's an average of some sort. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to correlate directly with with the group of people or network that we engage in it with. I think that's a really good point, B. I think having those simplified graphics and um, images, as I say, do have a place, but then it's difficult to use those six A's to think about, one, is it applicable to my context? Because that doesn't tell you if the research was conducted in secondary schools in America, for example. It doesn't give you that context because it's been simplified and distilled into a simple graphic. It also is difficult to appraise the, the quality of that evidence if you don't have the studies which underlie it. So thinking about that, that being able to appraise the quality of something is more difficult when it's been distilled into a simple graphic. I was tempted with the Educational Endowment Foundation um, when I first saw it to basically find what's the what's the best impact I can get for the, for the least money with the yeah. strongest research base. So you, 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 you sort it on those things. And then secondary was, is this actually what the school needs? Kind of need to start uh, at what the school needs first and then then look for the intervention that's going to, to address that. And I also think as a school leader, it's funny, isn't it? Because we're very much going down this route now, assuming that all education our staff engage in is, is for whole school impact. But actually, we're working with individuals. And am I OK if a staff member comes to me and says, I've read this research piece, I think it would really work for x can i trial it with them actually on a whole school scale you know we're talking about one individual and therefore if you translated that into impact well that would look like no impact at all really would it you know one percent of your school maybe but actually we're in a vocational profession dealing with individuals and therefore we would still support that staff member if they were passionate about doing that so i think it's that's interesting as well isn't it you know yes research statistically to be significant has to kind of address the whole population however I as a school leader I'm also okay if one of my teachers 
comes to me and says, I just think this would really work for this child, you know, implement some strategies in the classroom. So it's just finding that balance, isn't it, between finding things that your teachers are passionate enough and and recognise it could have an impact on your children and not losing sight of, we can't physically in schools have a million and one pieces of research going on at once. So it's it's finding that balance, I think, is the tricky thing as well for practitioners. I think what you're describing there with the, the individual teacher who comes and says, can I, can I try this for this particular need? Is maybe what we aspire to is that you know obviously with the pressures and time uh, respecting the pressures and time teachers have is to think like researchers and to know why you're doing what you do in the classroom and whether teachers have the autonomy and agency to to make those decisions because there's also the case where the research is chosen for you um, and we are doing this it's researched um, and maybe is time given to think through personally whether that research has 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 meaning if someone else has chosen it. I think as well, just I remember like as a teacher being presented with something that was going to change in school and being told informed that it's research it's research informed, it's been be driven by research but never been the research never been shared with me. So it being impossible to appraise the quality of that and then I think that left me feeling like I didn't have autonomy because I couldn't even engage with the evidence and perhaps think about how I'd implement it in my own classroom because I I was being presented with this kind of dictate of this is what we're going to do. And saying that just with the claim it's evidence informed, but not being presented with the evidence itself, which I think is is something that is a challenge. Research is being used or presented to teachers. I think that's right. So that links into the importance of having systems in place, isn't it, Matthew? And actually, if as a school you are choosing to implement an initiative based on research, then actually you have to chunk out that time to engage in the research as a staff team, because you're right, you will have staff members that struggle to get behind that if they haven't been given the time to engage in that. We've been discussing the concept of research generally. I'm wondering if you have any particular pieces of research that are especially resonant with you, either because of their efficacy, because of their impact, or maybe because of the opposite. I think for me, I'm I'm a big fan of the EEF guidance documents currently as a school we are using um, the guidance document around metacognition to really drive forward our school development plan and already have had have had huge impact in that so much that it's actually resulted in us redeveloping our behavior policy and our children parents and staff have come a far way on how we approach behavior and how we talk about it with our children so i straight away that one kind of you know shouts out to me that definitely definitely a big fan funnily enough as i sit here and reflect on it part of what we did with that was the visual <laughs> that got provided in that guidance document there's a seven step structure that you use to teach children about metacognition and alongside that self-awareness um, and that's that's where we went first so we we engaged in the research as a staff team and pulled out that seven step structure first as an initiative to implement and that is what really started having the impact in our in our children's behavior and children's way of thinking um so isn't it interesting that actually of of the whole research document uh we actually picked out the visual so it just goes to that triangulates back to what we we're saying earlier doesn't it you know when time is tight people do naturally go to something that is visual something tangible i guess that we can go yes right that we can take and actually practically use Mm, and and that metacognition focus, I think that's quite cheap as well, isn't it? And gives you yes. gives you bang for your buck. That that actually comes to the top as being the most cost effective, but with a, a strongest evidence base behind it. So that that is the one. Matthew, anything that stands out for you? 
Yeah, I think um, lots of our conversations have been about kind of causal research, looking at effect sizes and the ES work, which I think is really important. But the piece of research which really stands out in my mind is more descriptive in nature. So it's a Reflecting Realities reports from the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education. And so this they've been published uh, for five years now. The last one came out in November, the end of last year. Um, and these reports look at ethnic diversity in the children's books published in the UK and essentially the paucity of ethnically diverse characters within those texts, particularly main characters. Um, and they have tracked trajectory over the last five years and it will continue to, to go. And there's positive um, progress being made there. But as a teacher, it, that was that really impacted on me. Something I knew I think I was aware of on some level, but having that data that backed up that this was a real concern in the publishing landscape and therefore had an impact on the books that the children in my class have been exposed to, both within my classroom and, and um, outside of school, it really made me aware of that as an issue. Um, I think as well, some of the most powerful research I think you've alluded to already, Mike, is things that challenge perhaps our assumptions already. So I think for lots of people, people assumed, oh, there's lots of great books um, featuring ethnically diverse characters. It, it got it on, it got that on the agenda for lots of people. And that, that work, I think, is really important. As a result of engaging and looking at those research reports, I've then since done my own research in this area, um, involved in lit and colour research from Ronnie Mead and um, Ronnie Mead Trust and Penguin. Um, so really lucky to be working in that space, but it's still something in my own practice, work with teachers and work with schools that's at the fore of my mind because of, of, of the work that was done by the Centre for Literary and Primary Education. I think we're beginning to describe the features of research that you, you want to aspire to and that it's disruptive, it makes you think, and there's a call to action. The, the piece of research that I love most because it is disruptive is is the most argued about what well, it was decades ago and still continues to rumble on is, is about multiple intelligences, Howard Gardner's work and the premise that everyone is intelligent, but in their different ways. And he premises that intelligence is, is multiple and diverse rather than being a single measure. And that's wonderfully disruptive because it challenges what people's understanding of not only intelligence is, but kinds of thinking and kinds of success. And that's a real, real win because it started um, a critical conversation about, is this actually the case? And Gardner and critics have been debating this for, for decades. But what happens is it puts the idea about what is success and what is intelligence on the agenda. Regardless of whether you believe in the research or not, it gets you talking about the, the important thing. In terms of what is out there at the moment, for a question for both of you, what would you say is the most disruptive or kind of incendiary research that that's there that will provoke people and get people thinking and talking? Just to, before looking at disruptive research, just to gently challenge that, I'd say that sometimes it's really important to have research which just confirm things that have gone on in schools for, for decades, for years, that we think anecdotally seem like a good thing. But it's, I think it's also useful to have empirical evidence which does mm. validate those judgments. The fact that we're spending essentially time, money and resource on things, it's good to have an evidence base. Just be like, right, that is the right thing. We're on the right track there. Let's carry on doing those things. I think it's useful in thinking about in a slightly different sense, but things that confirm my beliefs. But looking at the research from National Literacy, Literacy Trust, which looked at disadvantaged pupils, how many books they have in their home, I anecdotally felt like I knew that children in my class um, and then just kind of scaling up in my head children nationally disadvantaged children didn't have many books in their home but having the evidence help it confirms that belief but then helps like a policy level or a school level to support children to get books in the home if that makes sense so you there, I think there is a place for evidence which does confirm what we think we know alongside mm. that more disruptive mm. research too 
No, I like that. And that was a, that was an exemplary gentle challenge there, Matthew. I fully take that. No, you're, you're right. I mean, the, the disruptive side of it, or the confirmatory side of it as well, to say we suspect this, we've been doing it, but look, here is a solid evidence base that supports that. B, anything disruptive or even confirmatory? I think in general, we are in this really interesting generation where everything adv- is advancing so quickly And we've got this really funny situation in education where you've got these young children being, you know, educated and taught by those of us that were were a different generation. But really, what we used to refer as generations, it's almost like there's like six generations in one now because everything is just advancing so quickly. Um, So I think rather than one piece in my mind being disruptive, I actually just think in general... um, a lot of research that is out there now can be disruptive in the way that there's a lot of people that feel like, well, that was never, you know, it was never never an issue in schools 10 years ago. So why would we now suddenly need to think about it? And, you know, that links to what I was saying earlier about the metacognition. We just have a better understanding now of how children learn or what, you know, how we can improve that. And our curriculum is ever more demanding and, and every, you know, everything is moving so quickly that I think a lot of research is it is disruptive because of that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think generally research and the pace that it's moving at now um, because of advances in technology or science, you know, whatever the advance is, I think that's the disruptive factor rather than necessarily the content of the research. So there's so much going on and research is reflecting the speed of change. And that's a disruptive. Yeah. Sorry, Matthew, go on. No, sorry, I was going to say, I think that's a really good point. But I think that's a good point in terms of what we're researching. So think about just AI and like even the recent advances in the last few weeks we've seen um, of the power of AI and the impact that's going to have on, on pupils and learning perhaps also the impact that will have on research methodology i'm really interested to think about how machine learning and ai will also impact on perhaps the speed in which we can research things i mean i find it personally a bit scary um on both sides both in terms of what we'll find out from the research and how it can perhaps improve the research or support the research process um but i think that will be interesting to see how that perhaps disrupts um in the future i think you're talking about chat gpt there matthew i am yes so as as we finish up, I'm just wondering if you would both like to offer some top tips or advice to time-pressed, value-led, dedicated educators who want to do more with research. I think in my mind, there are three things to address when we think about engaging with research. The first being access. So I think part of that is time, but you mentioned that the time pressures on teachers and school leaders, but also physically being able to access evidence um, logistically. So the EF is a great place where research summaries are posted and synthesis of research is there but in terms of individual studies things like the British Education Research Association becoming a member of there or the Charter College of Teaching is a good way to get access to um, evidence and then once you've got access critically engage with that research and I've already mentioned Steve Higgins work here having some um, a framework to appraise um, and critically engage with the research evidence is really important and then when you're confident, you're comfortable with the, the strength of the findings, think about how you can implement that. And as I mentioned already, um, the EEF implementation guidance report is really helpful there. My advice would be prioritise it. If you are serious about it, prioritise it. Um, do it. Don't overcomplicate it. So if you are a school leader, start with your school development plan. Give your staff half an hour of a senior leadership team meeting or a staff meeting 
and tell them to choose one element of the school development plan, go and research, you know, engage in research to do with that. Um, it's very easy now on Google Scholar. It's very easy to use some EEF documents. So there's some really quick wins out there um, and then come back to it and give another half an hour for people to feed back or however long, but you have to chunk out the time and don't overcomplicate it, but definitely prioritize it. So if you are listening to this as a school leader, have those conversations. When are we going to do it? How are we going to prioritize it? If you are listening to this as a school staff member who, who really wants to do that, go and speak to your school leaders and ask them, can we embed in our monitoring cycle or our professional development cycle half an hour for the next three weeks to engage in research, feed it back, see if we're going to change anything or if it's just raised our awareness? Because either of those things are better than if you are already not engaging in research anyway. Even if it just raises awareness of the action of engaging in research, that's already had an impact on staff members. So, so in summary from both of you there, it's it's prioritise, simplify, allocate time. And then, as you said, Matthew, have a framework for doing that. You know, it can do nothing but increase the professionalism of, of what teachers do. And you've described, I think, a very efficient and effective way of doing it. I mean, it'd be nice to have sabbaticals, wouldn't it, and spend you know weeks and months on this. But I'm wondering whether having a short amount of valued and ring-fenced time to do it will actually make it more effective. And what it gives you ultimately is the why of what you're doing, something that we don't often have time to contemplate. Matthew Courtney, B. Durston, thank you so much for your time talking about research. I wonder whether, well, should we do this again? Is, is there more Is there more to say about research, do you think? I might need that sabbatical to, to fit it all in, Matt. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I think I think there is more to say. I think there's there's more to say about um, perhaps particular areas of the evidence. It's, it, this generic level is helpful in terms of developing a framework for teachers and school leaders to think about engaging. But then there's obviously so many different areas of research evidence that could be we could dig into and talk about the actual um, substantive evidence within that area maybe, of education. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should each pick a, a piece that's um, either confirmatory, disruptive, or both, if that's possible. Is it possible to be confirmatorily disruptive? Um, we pick something individually and then take it to pieces over another another session. That'd be wonderful. Thank you so much for your time both. Have a good rest of your day. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.